Welcome to the Way Church Podcast. The Way Church exists to love God, love others, and make disciples. You can find out more about the Way Church at thewaychurchrva.com. Now we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your Word. We thank you for your gathering that you called the church, Father. We thank you for the time set apart to focus on you, Lord. We just ask that you lead us in every aspect of this worship gathering. Help us to see you more clearly, Father. Lord, we just ask that your spirit just fills this place, fills us with your presence, moves in a mighty way, and help us draw us closer to you. We thank you, Father. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 You have a seat. If you haven't already, you can grab your Bibles. We'll be in Acts chapter 8, like Rick just said. And we're continuing this series, so if you're New here to the Way Church, we've been in the series now for a few weeks called Moment to Movement. And as we look through our own lives, we see different moments in our lives that led to significant movements in various ways. And as we're doing an overview of the book of Acts, Acts shows different moments that led to the advancement of the movement known as the gospel and the movement of the church, also known as the Way. And so today we find ourselves in Acts chapter 8, and up to this point, We've seen that throughout the whole area of Jerusalem that the church was exploding in growth. Many, many people, thousands upon thousands of people were coming to faith and being baptized. And things were were going well. Though, this was an amazing movement, obviously, of God for different moments that he's orchestrated. Things weren't perfect. And that's what we saw a little bit last week. The church was still under spiritual attack. That hasn't changed, won't change, and wasn't changing for them Though things were still going great, and like we talked about last week, there's a few attacks that we've seen. And in Acts 4 specifically, uh, a couple of the apostles were put in prison for proclaiming the name of Jesus and his resurrection. In Acts chapter 5, we see dishonesty of a couple threaten the disunity within the church. And then in Acts chapter 6, we saw last week about this anti-Christian cultural concepts that manifested itself in the form of favoritism, specifically against a group of widows, widows that were being neglected while others were being favored. And, and so the church and the apostles appointed seven men to help meet this need for this group of neglected widows. One of the seven men they appointed was this man named Stephen. In Acts 6, Stephen is known as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting, just this phrase gives me the wonder, man, I, I want to be known like that. I want to be known as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. I wonder if that's your desire as well. It gets me thinking, what am I known for? And I wouldn't say it's always favorable. At least in my life, I haven't always been known for a man of faith. I wonder about you. What are you known for now? Stephen here, man full of faith and Holy Spirit, there was this time in Acts 6, it shows that opposition arose against Stephen specifically, and these group of people started arguing against Stephen. It doesn't say exactly what Stephen was teaching. We can assume that is obviously gospel-related, Jesus-centered. But they were arguing against him. But in Acts chapter 6, verse 10, it says, but they were unable to stand up against his, being Stephen's, wisdom in the spirit by whom he was speaking. I love that. It didn't say you know, Stephen was full of intellect. It didn't say that. Full of knowledge, with all this training, it didn't say that. 
It says, by the Spirit. And this is exactly, we see Jesus' words being fulfilled time after time after time. And in Matthew 10, Jesus told his disciples that when you're handed over, like when you're persecuted, when you're arrested, he says, don't worry. Don't worry about how or what you're to speak. But it will be given to you what to say in that hour. Because, he says, it isn't you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. That's what we see with Stephen. It's a great reminder that the Spirit gives the words we need and gives the strength to proceed in any and all uncertainty. Just does. And we always come to these moments like we see great men and great women of faith despite severe persecution and struggles and they maintain their faith and we always think, how can they do that? Anyone ever been there? Like look at these great heroes of the faith throughout history. It's like, how can they do that? The Great Reformation. How could they go to the stake and be burnt alive for their faith in Christ and sing hymns of praises while they're being burnt on green wood to make the flames go slower? How could they do that? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. That's what we see here, this Stephen, this man, the Holy Spirit, full of faith. And we see throughout Acts 6 and Acts 7, he's, he's arrested, you know, kind of like Jesus, what happened to Jesus, this group of haters gathered a whole bunch of liars and started spreading a false testimony against Stephen. So he's arrested, brought before this group of religious leaders. And it's interesting what Stephen does all through Acts chapter 7. He gives this history lesson to these people who teach God's word. There's a specific aim. All throughout this sermon that essentially that Stephen gives to this group of religious leaders, he's going back throughout history about how God's people would always persecute and kill God's prophets. And he turns it on them. And he says, you are just like them. As they persecuted the ones that foretold the coming Christ, now you are persecuting the ones that are telling you about the Christ that came. And at this, Acts chapter 7 says, when they heard these things, they were enraged and gnash their teeth at him. Have you ever been that mad? Like you just grind your teeth? Just full of rage? Maybe on the road, some of y'all, you don't need to stop, right? Like rage makes us ridiculous, is what happens. He's got full of rage and anger and hate and gnash their teeth at him. And it says in verse 55 of Acts 7, it says, Stephen... At this, they were raging against him. They heard these things, focused at him, gathered around, raging against him. It says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. Now picture this. This group get coming, coming at Stephen. And he just pauses and just gazes into heaven. It says, he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And this is amazing, because other areas of Scripture, it talks about Jesus seated at the right hand, hand of authority of God. But Stephen, in this moment, looks up and sees Jesus standing. And I don't know. I don't know why he sees it like this, but I have some thoughts. Commentators have some thoughts. Historians have some thoughts. Theologians have some thoughts. But it's almost like Jesus is welcoming Stephen as a good father. Like I think about my, my little guys when they run to me and just standing welcoming them, holding my arms, wrapping them up. It's like Stephen, he gets this picture of Jesus waiting 
to welcome him. It says that these men, they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Now picture this. Raging, gnashing teeth, grab him, pull him out of the city, begin to hurl rocks at him. It says the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul's important. Saul was this rising religious leader. And it's interesting here because, again, I came to faith in Jesus at seven, so I had, or seven, at the age of 20, but I had a whole bunch of years of experience without Jesus. And just a young man filled with rage, I was kind of similar to what we see here. And so it was common for in school for me either to be in a fight or around a fight. Why I say that? Because when, before you get in a fight, usually they're scheduled. This happens. Like after school, meet me over, okay, right? So they're scheduled fights. Two of your buddies would go, and they all get in a circle, and they have this little circle fight getting ready to happen. And what you would do is if you had some nice clothes on, maybe a hat, you would take it off, and buddy, hold my hat. Like it's about to get real, right? My jacket, I don't want to get it messed up. It's almost a similar scene here. They're taking off the garments, and Saul watched this. Saul's like, yeah, I got you. Take care of business. Consenting, condoning, encouraging what's about to happen. This killing of Stephen. In Acts 7, 59, it says, while they're stoning Stephen, while this was happening, picture this now, as he was getting hit with rocks, it says he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he says he knelt down low and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. After saying this, it says he fell asleep. How peaceful is that? But it just sticks out to me because how can such forgiveness of such evil even be possible? In this moment, as they were killing this seemingly innocent man, arrested, persecuted, all from the name of Jesus only, he was saying, Lord, forgive them for the sin they're doing. How is that possible? I have an answer. It's not, it's not an easy answer. It's the only answer I got. God. Only God. There is no other way, humanly speaking, that this is possible, this type of forgiveness is possible. Only God. And this is huge for us because it's just a reminder that for all the hurting that we go through, there's a process of healing that has to happen. And that process looks different, different time spans and different ways. And these processes, how we d- deal with hurt and emotional and mental just hurdles that we have to go through because of hurt that's done to us. There's a process that we go through. But in the process, we have to continue to pursue Jesus. We have to. Lasting emotional mental healing only comes from Jesus. And extending this kind of forgiveness only comes from the Spirit through faith in Jesus. As we see here, as we saw, Stephen was known as a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And there was another man known to be full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Jesus. Jesus. And so what we see here is what we saw in Jesus as Jesus was being crucified on the cross. 
He says, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. This is Holy Spirit-led forgiveness. And this is possible for everyone in this room. This kind of forgiveness is possible for every Christian. But it's only by faith in Jesus, his healing, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think of this. Like, this is tremendous evil in both these circumstances to Stephen and Jesus. And they both ask for these guys' forgiveness because they don't know what they're doing. I'm just going to go on a limb here. It's going to be hard to, because I was thinking about this just before I uh, came up here this morning in preparation for this time together. I'm convinced that when people do evil against you and me, that they don't know what they're doing. Now you may say, no, there's times they do. Like they plan some things. What I'm saying is that they don't know the full extent of what they are doing. They cannot humanly know the full ramifications that their action is going to impact. You all know so much generational impacts of things we go through. They have no idea the full scope. And so knowing that, knowing that there's evil, sinful in the, sinfulness in the world, and knowing that ultimately they don't know the full scope of what they're doing, because again, sin makes us stupid. It starts bringing things in a little more perspective. And so obviously Jesus knows at some level these people knew what they were doing. At some level Stephen knew at some level these people knew what they were doing. But they did not know the full scope of what they were doing. And what we see here is Stephen became the first Christian martyr, which would then result for many, many more throughout the centuries, Christian martyrs. Those people specifically killed for the name of Jesus. According to Open Doors, their research in 2022, there was 5,621 Christians killed because of their faith. That's about 15 Christians per day. So based on that, before you go to bed tonight, there will be 15 more Christians killed because of the name of Jesus. In that same time frame, there is about 4,542 Christians detained and 2,110 churches attacked. Persecution hasn't changed. But the question goes, why, when we see numbers like this, and we see this account of Stephen, why would God allow such evil to happen? This man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, why would he allow Stephen to be murdered? Why do bad things happen? Really is a question that usually gets asked. If there's a good God, why do bad things happen? And if we're honest, things like this seems meaningless. Things that you've gone through seem meaningless. There's a story about this man named John Patton. and It was 1839. 1839. These two missionaries, their names were John Williams and James Harris from the London Missionary Society, were sent to these islands called the New Hebrides Islands, just east of Papua New Guinea where people on these islands were known to have no Christian influence at all. And so these men went, compelled by the gospel and for a heart of those who don't know Jesus and are desperately lost without him. They went. And Williams and Harris, only moments after arriving on the shores of these islands, were killed and eaten by cannibals. Seems like a waste. About 20 years later, 
feeling God's tug to bring the hope of the gospel, the hope of Jesus to this, these islands and to rescue them from the spiritual blindness and oppression that they were experiencing. This Scottish missionary named John Patton, along with his family, were set to make sail to these islands. And so John shares this story, and I've heard this in numerous ways and in different families throughout the years, of many people trying to deter him from going to them. I mean, it makes reasonable sense. Why would you go to those murderers? You are going to get killed. And so he shares one of these stories of these accounts. He says, amongst many who sought to, to deter me, one dear older Christian gentleman, whose crowning argument always was the cannibals. You'll be eaten by cannibals. At last, I replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced now in years. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave and there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it makes no difference to me to whether I'm eaten by cannibals or worms. And in the great day, my resurrected body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. What a perspective. So John and his family did go, and they landed on the islands in 1859. And shortly after, John would lose his wife to fever, and a few weeks later would lose his newborn son to the same. 1862, Patton was forced to flee because of religious persecution. And so are you thinking, it seems meaningless. Why even go in the first place? However, in 1866, he would return with his new wife. And then over the next 15 years, they would see many, many people come to faith in Jesus to where it was known that the whole island was now Christian. In his autobiography, in thinking about those first two Christian martyrs that were murdered only moments after arriving on land. He wrote about these forerunners. He says, Those were the new Hebrides baptized with the blood of the martyrs. And Christ therefore told the whole Christian world that he claimed these islands as his own. And the accounts go on to later reference that those cannibals, those natives to the islands, would see the endurance of these Christians and say, why do they keep coming? Man, that speaks volumes. Dedicated for the good of others, for the glory of God, so all can hear and know the name of Jesus and have an opportunity to be saved. And to this day, faith in Jesus is still known to be thriving on this island, once filled with pain and anger. So Patton did not feel that the martyrdom of Williams and Harris was meaningless. Regarding Stephen, can God actually bring something meaningful from this mess? And the early church must not have felt like it could have happened. That brings us to where we're at today. That was all context to Acts chapter 8. Because you see in verse 1 it says, Saul agreed with putting him, being Stephen, to death. 
And in verse 3, it says, Saul was ravaging the church. He went her house after house, dragging off men and women to put them in, in prison. Just ravaging, almost just consumed with anger, out of control. I can do everything I want to, I need to come against these people. Just fueled with rage. The only thing he could see is what this ravaging refers to. The other day, I was out in our backyard, and my sweet little two-year-old daughter was playing on the slide. And when she was sitting on the bottom of the slide, and I look over, and she's sitting, and behind her, she's like just pressing on it, pressing on the slide. What are you doing? So I walked over, and what are you doing? And my sweet little girl was just murdering ants. This put, oh, oh, this rage, enraged with these. Like, what are you doing? My sweet little murderer. Well, they were in her way. She was trying to slide. What's she supposed to do? But I th- thought about that. I'm like, just, just the intentionality and uh, I'm focused on this. These ants are in my way. And so now Saul was just ravaging the church. That's what his focus was. He was ate up, consumed with this rage against these specific people. And the church was under attack and it had felt like the moment that would end this thriving church movement known as the way. This had to be it. Like this had to be... This will stop it all, which is interesting because in our first week of the series, do you remember, we covered this, and I'm sure you remember because you guys take copious notes and you guys reflect on the sermon as you go throughout the week, but Jesus gave a command. After his resurrection and immediately before his ascension, he gave a command. He says to those of his followers, you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit. So that was, you will, it's a promise, and they did, we saw that in Acts chapter 2, and it says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That happened, they were, the church was thriving, the gospel was going, people were being saved, coming to faith, being baptized, but he says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. None of that's happened yet. Up to this point, the gospel has just remained in Jerusalem. And despite some hurdles and hardships, the church had been growing and things to be, seemed to be going pretty good for them, despite some of the things that we talked about. And so what kept them from carrying out Jesus' commands to go, not only to Jerusalem, but to Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth? What kept them there? And I don't know, I can't ask them, but I have some ideas. Just thinking through things and people. I mean, what kept them there? It could have been, man, they had families. They had careers. I mean, that's where they were making money. If they went somewhere else, how could they make a living? Maybe some felt they were too old. Maybe some felt they were too young. Maybe some had some health ailments that could potentially prevent them from going anywhere else. Maybe many just felt comfortable in the community that they're at, really loved the community they're a part of. I think the point here, I'm convinced, is that the early Christians got comfortable. They were comfortable. They liked it there. Things were going pretty good up until Acts 8. Anything outside our comfortableness, you can write that down. That's a word I'm pretty sure. It creates a fearfulness, doesn't it? Like, no, I I, I like this area. I'm not sure what's going to happen, so I'll stay in this little comfort area that we have and one of my favorite quotes, and I've shared it a couple times, is from P.T. Barnum, known as 
just a showman, entertainer, entrepreneur, the circus movement of sorts. He has this quote. He says, comfort is the enemy of progress. And man, isn't that true when it comes to making disciples and sharing the gospel? I'll take it a step further is fear is the enemy of faith. It's at odds. So as comfort is the enemy of progress, fear is the enemy of faith. And all of a sudden here, we see that the early church went from thriving to striving for surviving. Everything changed in a moment. It says on that day, means the previous day things were fine. The next day things were not so much. And just think about what it would have been like. Like put yourself in those shoes of the early Christians in that day, in that moment, being a part of this church movement. Things were great. Things were, people were coming to faith. We were caring for one another. Needs were being met. Yeah, we had some issues. You know, we had, you know, the crazy Uncle Sam and the Aunt Edna and these different things that we had to deal with. But things were good until they weren't. All of a sudden, people were having to leave their homes, leave their jobs, being in prison, losing their lives, all for being a Christian. Families were being outcast, marginalized, uprooted, destroyed, all because of the name of Jesus. Imagine that was us. What would that be like? See, it's interesting. We have the benefit of looking back. I mean, this is 2,000 years ago, and so we can look back and see how things panned out for them. We know the outcome. It's interesting when you can't look ahead what that feels like. When you're in the midst of it, what that feels like. It's easy looking back. Like, oh yeah, I can see. That was, that was, it was hard, but it was worth it. When things happen like this, we face life's hurdles. We can't look forward. So in this moment, it had to seem impossible for God to work anything good through the tremendous evil of the actions of these peoples and their plans. In a similar way as us, they had many examples of God's faithfulness. If you think about it, all these, just think about our history. We have many examples of God's faithfulness despite people's unthinkable faults and failures. And all throughout the Bible, biblical history, and personal history, I continue to see God turning garbage into goodness for his glory as he continues to write his story. I mean, just think about your own lives. I mean, you look at biblical history, but in your personal life, surely you can point out points where, like, I don't know what happened. I didn't do anything, but God showed up. I mean, I hear testimony up testimony. That means I hear stories about when people came to faith, and every story I hear about that moment that they finally put their faith from themselves into Jesus alone, it was like, I don't know what happened, but I knew I needed this. I didn't do anything. I didn't go anywhere. I just, God interrupted my plans. But God does that. He turns garbage into goodness over and over again. But we can't see it until a lot of times after the fact. So what do you do when you're in the midst of it? This is exactly what Romans 8.28 talks about. We know that all things, that's a lot of stuff, all things work together for the good for those who love God. That's God's people and who are called according to his purpose. I mean, God brings purpose from what seems to be worthless. Have you ever been there? I mean, go through hard things. Like, how can you do anything with this mess? Anything, it seems worthless. It seems meaningless. 
This is what Joseph, I love Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, because Joseph up to this point had been betrayed by his brothers, thrown into a pit to be killed. He got pulled out of the pit, and it was a prisoner at Potiphar's house, then got betrayed there, went to prison, and finally from there, eventually went to the palace and was second in charge over all of Egypt, and God used him to rescue many, many people from a famine that would strike. And through all these moments, you see, man, these seem meaningless moments, but God was using all that, using evil plans, not that he would make these people do evil. People do evil things because we people are evil, but God's bigger than that. And so there came this point where all these brothers would stand before now him being second in command, having a whole bunch of power and authority, and his brothers had zero. And, like, you think about this, like, what would you do in that? Like, this is revenge time. And that's what his brothers were thinking. Like, oh, my goodness, we're in trouble. And what Joseph says, he says, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. And the point we see here is God would turn the evil of a few into the, for the good of many God would turn the mess into something meaningful. So I'm going to ask you this. What is your reaction when bad things happen? Right? Like, think about it. When hard things happen, what's your reaction? In the midst of the mess, what is your move? What do you do? What do you think? What comes out of your mouth? I was thinking about this this week in my own life and the life of others. So many of us are fueled, and dare I say, ruled by fear. Fearful moments can blind us, blind our memories from the many faithful moments of God throughout history. Personally, biblically, we forget. It's interesting, the brain... The brain's reaction to fear and worry is super interesting. When the, this part of the brain called the amygdala senses fear, the cerebral cortex, the area responsible for reasoning and judgment, it becomes impaired, making it difficult to think clearly or make good decisions. In addition, it's been found that persistent anxiety cause, that can cause the amygdala to grow, intensifying the body's response to threatening or scary situations. Anxiety then can cause the hippocampus, the area of the brain that plays a major role in learning and memory, to shrink. So you already start seeing just the brain's natural response to fear, anxiety, worry that causes us to forget and react in ways that aren't good, that don't make sense. And that the persistence of that even grows those two things stronger. We forget more and we act worse, wrong. And this is a quick reminder. Let me give you three quick reminders when it comes to this. Number one, there is a war raging in your mind. 
Like these are all brain functions. And so how are we protecting our mind? What are we doing to protect our mind and get it geared towards where it needs to be? 2 Corinthians 10.5 says we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Mind, thoughts. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and the perfect will of God. And so meditating on God's word and remembering God's works are very practical next steps to fighting the battle that's waging war in your mind. There's some certain things that you guys just need to stop watching and start listening to also, right? There's some, some garbage that we let in that does impact us. But these are very positive steps that we can start waging war actively with God's word and remembering God's faithfulness. And there's a song that says, God hasn't failed me yet. And some people get hung up on it yet. Like, what do you mean? Like, he's going to fail you? The point is that he will never, ever fail you. Like, he hasn't done yet. You know why? Because he's unchanged. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God hasn't failed. He never will, no matter what we go through. Quick reminder number two, that fear isn't from God. St. Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, meaning fear is a spirit. And fear ain't from God. So it ain't from God. It ain't good. So what do we do with that? When you start getting overcome with fear and fear starts driving your decisions you make, you know that's not from God. Reminder number three, that God can turn your mess into something meaningful. God can turn your mess into something meaningful. And that's what we see in James chapter 1, verses 2 and through 4. It says, consider it great joy. Not just like be happy a little bit. Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. You ever do that? Like, yeah, I got a flat tire. Woo! No, nobody does that. Or when you're being persecuted for your faith, your great joy when you experience various trials. Why? He says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So God is using even the garbage that we go through for something good for our souls and our spirit. Imagine that. The point is God is still in control even un- over the uncontrolled circumstances. In any, all circumstances, God's still in control. It was interesting. I just reflect on this this morning. It's almost exactly 22 years ago that I was in the Air Force and deployed to Uzbekistan. So a month after September 11th, we were flying into Uzbekistan to set up a bear base. It was interesting, this, as we were coming to land, the pilot turns off the lights, turns on the red lights, and they start what's called a combat landing. Landing. I've never done this before. I've flown on planes, but not like this, the C-17, going into what was known as a battle area. And what it does, it descends very quickly, like the plane is falling out of the sky, and starts spiraling. And it was scary, but we were warned of it. And so I knew what to expect, because the pilot said, this is what we're about to do. Don't be scared. So what's going on? We're going to do this. We're going to be all right. And so in this circumstance that felt un- out of control, I trusted the pilots who were in control. They told me what would happen, told me what it felt like, right, uh, me and the passengers. And though it didn't feel good, and it was still scary, we trusted the pilots were still in control. I was out of control. I had nothing to do with it. I was just long for the ride at that point. It felt like the plane was falling out of the sky. But at that point, who's my faith in? I was helpless. Faith was in the pilots. Isn't that interesting? 
Like when we go through these life moments when things seem to be spiraling out of control and it feels like I am out, I, I can't do anything. I have no control over this and yet I'm in the mess. God is still in control. We have to go back to his word and remember his works. He's faithful. And in one sense, these first century Christians that we're seeing here had to have felt like everything was spiraling out of control for them in this moment. One day it was fine, the next day it was not. And they were fleeing and being persecuted. But based on their response, their faith remained in the Jesus who was still in control. Look at verse 1 and verse 4. It says they were scattered into Judea and Samaria. But then verse 4 it says, So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. This is fascinating because this is the same word that they were being persecuted for. The gospel message about Jesus, there's faith in him alone. There's no other way to have a relationship with God. This message they were being persecuted for. And though they were persecuted and fleeing, they continued to proclaim the message. Why? Because it's the most important news that's ever been known. And there is salvation in no one else besides Jesus. And so despite what was happening to them, they would go still proclaiming the name of Jesus. Because Jesus says, I am the way. Not a way. Not various ways. Not if you do this and do that. Oh, and by, by the way, have some faith. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. He says, anyone who believes in me has eternal life. Those who do not will perish. And faith comes by what is heard. And so these early Christians knew that. No matter what happens, we're going to flee, we're going to go, but as we go, we can't stop telling others about Jesus. It's who we are. And it's who people need. Yesterday at the fall festival, we do this big event. Those that weren't there, those that you who were just, it was an amazing time. Just thank you so much for putting your Saturday aside just to serve for the sake of the good of many it's a great time. We do this festival, but we only do it really for one reason. It's really a bait and switch, right? I mean, man, we love this community, no doubt. But we would love for them to love the Lord more. And so as we have thousands of people there, we take a moment before we give away our grand prize of some Beats headphones, because everybody wants that. We give them what they need more. We share the gospel. We tell them that there's a God who created them specifically the way they are to have a relationship with him. Yet we have this thing called sin. We've all sinned. And if you don't know what sin is, just think, oh, you can't even keep your own standards for a week, let alone God's. And that sin separates us from God. We can't do anything good about it. The Bible says our good deeds are like filthy rags in God's sight. That's why God did something for us, stepped out of heaven. Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not live to die the death that we deserve and to conquer death, raised on the third day, so that whoever believes in him, whoever believes that somehow, some way, you paid my sin debt on the cross by your blood will be saved. We'll have the relationship that you were created to have in the first place with the creator God of the whole universe. This is the good news of the gospel. And so this is the news that as they scattered, they preached. And this word scattered is interesting. It's the same verb that's used to refer to sowing seeds. As Jesus gives this parable in Luke 8 about sowing the seeds, it's spreading God's word. 
Some fell along the path. Some fell around rocky ground. Some fell on good ground. But Jesus says, the one out on the good ground grew, produced fruit, and a hundred times that was sown. The sowing, scattering, sowing seeds. And as we go and as we share Jesus with people, there will be some who believe. And Stephen's martyrdom was that moment that led to this movement that fanned the flames of the gospel. It's so interesting that what the devil thinks will destroy and will hurt the church, God flips it and uses it to fan the flames of the gospel to bring many to faith. This is amazing. God has this whole thing rigged. Do you guys know that? The whole thing's rigged. But we need to remember that. As we encounter whatever Satan, the enemy, throws at you, we are in a spiritual war, you are in a spiritual attack, God is still God. And let that lead you through the storm. Instead of looking at the mess, look to the one who will bring meaning from the mess. And we see account after account, moment after moment, movement after movement throughout the book of Acts, these accounts that there was something happened, but God's word went forth. In Acts chapter 24, it says, but the word of God spread and multiplied. In Acts 19.20, it says, in the same way the word of the Lord spread and prevailed. Multiplied and prevailed mean that many would hear and believe. That's what it means. The church continued to grow despite persecution, despite hardships, despite all the mess that they were in. God was bringing meaning from it. This is a reminder in Romans 1.16, the gospel message that we have believed we're also to share. It says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 10 says, faith comes by what is heard. And so yesterday we took an opportunity to share the gospel, trusting that some will believe. Some won't. But that propels us as we go into this afternoon, after we go, go into Monday, Tuesday, this rest of the week. Are you being intentional with the time God's given you in the places where he's placed you? Open our eyes all around us, and there's lostness, there's hurt, there's people searching for our identity, and you have the hope of the gospel, Christian. And what are we doing with it? You want to see this place, this east, this west end, reached with the good news of the gospel? It's going to happen by the way of you. We go back to John Patton, and I, I, I briefly mentioned that there's been so many stories of how I've heard young people or whatever feeling the call to international missions. And there's always family members that try to stop them. And there's good intentions, like, but it's dangerous. Like there's, there's unreached people here. You know there's not. There is not unreached people here because you are here. That's why. So there's not unreached people here because you are here. Unreached people, there's no Christians. There's no gospel. Now, are we being disobedient? Yeah, probably. I just think, man, if you can be ate up with Jesus, if you love Jesus like Paul loved ravaging the church of Jesus, we'll see a movement like no other, but man, let's just stop and pause and just fall back in love with Jesus. I'm convinced that many of us have lost our first love in Jesus. Me just telling you to go share the gospel, that doesn't work for anything. 
That's the power of God because of your love for him that stirs our heart to now love others as Christ loved the church. Yeah, example after example of God's faithfulness throughout Scripture. And just a reminder that there's not a moment wasted under God's sovereignty. Not a moment. I don't know what all things that you're going through. There's a wide range of things, even with our faith family, that we're experiencing and go through with the families or just personally. But not any of those moments are wasted. No matter how hard, difficult they are, they're not wasted. God can still turn meaning from the mess. Again, Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called, called according to his purpose. Amen. My prayer for us this morning is just for us to rest in God's goodness. Even though you may be in some mess right now. You may be going through the grind. If not, one may be coming. But despite all that, God's good and he's faithful. And he still brings meaning to whatever mess that we're going through. So we're going to respond to God's word, and I'm just going to help us respond through that through a time of prayer. But I'm going to ask our band to come back up here, and what we're going to do is we're going to do like we do every single Sunday. We're going to have one last response worship song. But before we sing that, I'm just going to invite us just to a time of prayer. And as we sing, I'm going to invite us into a time of response to what God's word has been laying on your heart by the power of his Holy Spirit. This may look in various ways to various people, but... You may be led just to, as we sing, just to sit there and continue to pray. And just to spend time with God, whatever he's laying on your heart. You may just want to gather with a couple people right around you and just pray together. That would be amazing. We'll have a prayer team in the back. We would love to pray with you. You're not in this faith journey alone, nor were you meant to be. And for others, the natural response is standing and singing songs of praise because he's worthy. Our response of thinking through and meditating on his goodness and faithfulness despite what you're going through or been through. But for many, and like many churches around the world that meet, many people sitting in chairs and pews that know Jesus like they know Abraham Lincoln. Know a lot of facts, a lot of things, but they've never really trusted him their whole lives. If that's you, I'm going to invite you just to finally shift your faith from yourself to your Savior, Jesus. That simply by believing that he paid the price for your sin and just by faith alone that you have life with him starting at this moment and lasting forever, this movement within our lives personally, the relationship with the one true God who loves you and does everything for you to bring you to himself and who is always with you and will never forsake you. This is the good news of the gospel. And it's the truth of who God is. So I want to invite us to respond. I'm going to pray for us. And let's respond to what God's doing. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for bringing us here. We thank you for this, this time that you've given us just to set apart, to rest in your presence, to focus, to fix our eyes on you despite everything that's going on around us. Now, Lord, lead us in this moment, even now. Father, we just ask that you just move your spirit in this place and lead us to respond to what you're calling us to do. Maybe respond in 
calling us just to respond into faith or fear. Maybe our lives have been dominated by fearful responses or planning and repairing out of based of fear versus faith. Lord, deliver us from the captivity that fear brings. Help us live lives of boldness, freedom from fear, and faith in Christ, and trust in you more than ourselves or our circumstances. Maybe we just need your healing, Lord. We're going through some things, Father. I pray that you just give your peace that surpasses understanding, that you bring healing in a way that heals us personally and helps us to forgive those around us who have done great sin against us. The only work that you can do. Father, you know what we need. We just ask that you move in this place and let this moment be a catalyst to a significant movement in our lives personally and our lives as a church is fixing our eyes on you despite what we're going through because you remain faithful, steadfast, and steady. We thank you, Father. We give you all the praise and glory and we name, pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Way Church Podcast. If you would like prayer or if you'd like to talk to someone about a personal relationship with Jesus, please contact us through our website at thewaychurchrva.com.